And welcome to episode 96 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for everyone else who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane? Well, it was okay. Uh, no observing. It was kind of cloudy. Um, yeah. But uh, I was able to get some reading in and uh, sold... I think I sold some gear this week too. So um, kind of a low key week this upcoming week, though, is looking pretty good for us uh, mm -hmm. weather wise. So I'm kind of excited for that. Yeah. Uh, how was, how was your week? Yeah. Well, like I was saying, I've been having a bit of a trouble with my lag, but uh, you know, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't be observing anyway. Past couple of weeks has been kind of dogging me, but kind of thinking I'm turning the corner. So hopefully this week um, if we do get some, some good conditions then, uh, then yeah, hopefully uh, we can, uh, get out and uh, actually do some some observing i'm still thinking you offered me sort of first right of refusal on that diagonal i'm still i'm still oh, mulling yeah. that over <laughs> yeah yeah the the takahashi prism yeah yeah i've always i've always wanted one of those so mm -hmm. just uh yeah, i'm just kind of reading the reviews i'm i'm always always reluctant to buy to buy anything used especially when it's coming from you know, uh, sort of sketchy people like you. So. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good practice. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen you observing and it's, there's a lot of dust. There's a lot of dust. So. Yeah. Yeah. I just like to kick my feet in the sand and see what stirs up. Yeah. You know, a lot of, a lot of spit polish on your eyepieces. I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's actually recommended that sometimes saliva uh, like the enzymes in your saliva sometimes actually remove gunk off of, uh, lenses. So I just start with saliva. Don't, and, don't, do uh, that. don't do that. <laughs> please, please don't do that. I think, I think the enzymes actually eat the coatings, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, it's it like that's, there's some truth to it. Um, I'm not sure if it's Televue's website or astrophysics or something like that, but like from a reputable source, um, Really? Yeah, sometimes saliva is uh, a go-to tool for cleaning your optics. Now, Ooh, I, yeah. I joke about starting with saliva, but, <laughs> but um, you know, there's, there's other enzyme removing products you can purchase as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if we want to get into cleaning optics today, but uh, no. there, there's a science around it. Yes. And I'm, I'm not such a scientist, so yeah, I got to clean, I got to clean some eyepieces. Maybe that's, maybe that's what I should be doing. Uh, did you say, oh yeah, we received a book review. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Do you want to read that? That was a really great review. Yeah. It was an awesome review and yeah, why don't I read it? Um, I just need a few seconds to pull it up yeah, yeah. here. No, no worries at all. Yeah, no, I was really, I was kind of always interested in, uh, in this book they mentioned. I, I don't have it here in front of me, the review. I think Shane's going to call it up there, but uh, oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did read the review, and uh, I thought that's great. We'll we'll put that in the podcast this week because uh, we haven't been doing much observing. So, who was it that sent it to us? It was somebody in the UK, I remember. Yeah, Simon uh, lives in the UK. He says not far from London. Um, let's see here. So he's kind of been in and out of astronomy uh, a few times in his life, like, mm. like many people, you know, you get, yep. you get interested, you get busy. Sometimes uh, you just don't have time for the hobby and then, you know, you leave it for a few years and you come back. Um, so anyway, here, doo -doo -doo. you know, he talks about, um, you know, his first telescope was a Tasco refractor. 
Uh, it was 60 millimeter objective with a 700 millimeter focal length, which is, uh, you know, that was a pretty standard telescope, I think, in, uh, in those days. Mm -hmm. um, what's pretty interesting here, uh, he said, at, at one time, I wrote a small program to show the position of the brightest 100 stars and planets on an Amstrad home computer. Uh, mm. It took ages to type in the coordinates by hand. And then he says, you know, of course, today I just have an app on my phone that kind of does all that stuff uh, for wow. him. Um, yeah, pretty cool. So anyway, the book uh, that Simon sent a review on is called The Illustrated Guide to Astronomical Wan Wonders by uh, R. Thompson and B. Thompson. Um, and I believe it's part of a series uh, of kind of varying topics. Yeah, um, I think one anyway. was home forensics, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, guess, <laughs> I was yeah, like I'm looking like... at the series and I was like, yeah, well, there's pesky times when you don't want to inconvenience the corner. Well, what, 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 what amused me was, so I checked this out on Amazon and then Amazon always has the, hey, people that bought this book have also bought these other books. And it was, <laughs> yeah, it was paired with home forensics. I thought, I, I don't think I believe you, Amazon. You're just trying to sell me something, but. Anyway, on to the review. Uh, so this is from Simon. I'm just reading it. Uh, says this paperback book is quite large with over 500 pages and is broken down into observing targets arranged alphabetically by constellations visible in the northern hemisphere. Uh, the first few chapters cover types of astronomy equipment, how the book is organized and the codes used to classify each object. Uh, the different league lists are also summarized, and there is a code with each object to identify any list it might belong to. Uh, within each constellation chapter, there is a section describing that constellation and an overview star chart. Uh, there, there then follows a short section on each subject with a black and white image from the digitized sky survey. Uh, I really like the images as they represented what the object could look could really look like through the eyepiece in an amateur telescope. Uh, each image is scaled to, I think, 60 arc minutes square field of view, um, which is very realistic size for observing. Uh, roughly, this equates to a 10 millimeter eyepiece and a 600 millimeter focal length scope, uh, or 20 millimeter eyepiece and a 1200 millimeter focal length scope, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, the last section on each constellation chapter covers multiple stars, which I've only recently started observing, haven't been prompted by the podcast. Uh, each object is shown on a star hopping diagram and also listed by its RA and declination. Uh, the narrative describes how easy it is to find and see, uh, together with a one through four rating on its ease of finding and a scale of how impressive it might look. Uh, the book says it is made to accompany the observer, although due to our damp weather, I have not tried that. Uh, I really like this book as it gives a nice selection of objects to observe as each constellation swings across the sky. Uh, the field of view diagrams are realistic representations of what might be seen. Uh, there is a table in the opening chapters showing what month each constellation cul culminates in uh, at midnight, which is useful. But I felt... Uh, but I felt it could be supplemented by some seasonal charts. Mm. Uh, however, a phone app or even a, a good old trusty planisphere would show that. Mm -hmm. uh, while, whilst the book was published in 2007, uh, it still holds its value and is a useful observer's resource. Um, 
so anyway, that that's it. Uh, Simon wanted nice. to keep it uh, about a page, so that uh, yeah. that's about a page. Great that's review. Amazing. Yeah, and it sounds like a really awesome book because I think you know part of the you know, part of the struggle, you know, and I, I don't even think this is for new astronomers. I think this sometimes is even for seasoned astronomers. Yeah, um, it's it's pulling out um, or, or understanding what are easy objects or not even necessarily easy objects, but just, you know, what should I look at in a telescope tonight? And um, you and I have talked about it, Chris, that sometimes like when you look at magnitude and, and, and just the numbers on a list, Mm -hmm. uh, that's not necessarily indicative of uh, an object you should observe um, or one that might even be easy to observe. Yeah. Um, And, you know, Phil, uh, Phil from the UK, well, we might as well stick uh, to to the European theater for now. (laughs) Um, Sent a a voice memo. I don't know if I forwarded this one to you, Chris, I might be a little behind. Um, He was observing uh, a double star up in, um, oh, gee, I'm going to get this wrong. I think Gemini. And, um, uh, and I've made this mistake multiple times. You look at a list of double stars and you see, um, you know, a couple that look like, oh, okay, I'll, you know, I'll give it a try. It looks like it's doable. Um, and then you struggle to find it only to realize that it's a spectro spectro spectrogra- spectrograph double, I think is maybe the right term, okay. basically meaning, you know, you can't observe it visually. Um, so anyway, I love books that kind of, you know, provide good guidance like this uh, for the objects that are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's an interesting book. Um, you know, especially for somebody who uh, was was sort of into astronomy and then out of astronomy, because somebody like that is very likely coming back in with uh, a lot of those sort of uh, good basics still still in hand and probably uh, already already has some of those uh, good entry level guides like uh, such as Terence Dickinson's Night Watch, which is the one that that we recommend, which is excellent, uh, probably the best guide for Northern Hemisphere observers who are getting into it. But you know, somebody who's kind of re-entering. Um, probably need something maybe, maybe a little bit different than that because they already sort of have their, their head around the basics and sky orientation and stuff like that. And you can tell from Simon's analysis of like what would strengthen that book that he, he already has like a good handle on, on those type of basics uh, and what he's looking for in a guide. Um, so it's, it's nice to get, uh, to get something so specific. But, I, you know, I think like what you were saying about lists, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm in a way, which is sort of a strange thing, but in a way I'm, I'm a little bit anti-list because uh, like you were saying, Shane, the list sometimes can, in my opinion, anyway, lack a little bit of inspiration. Whereas, you know, when you're just looking at those numbers, um, they're not really inspiring in themselves, eh? like just the numbers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I always like to think of the sky more as, you know, something, you know, that we're sort of exploring and we're not just exploring it. By the numbers we're just amateur astronomers and we're doing this just for the love of it so sometimes when i see things just uh boiled down only to a list uh kind of lacks a bit of uh you know that sort of wonder and you know exploration that uh that i'm kind of kind of looking for in the sky though you know there's nothing wrong with lists and i've certainly developed a few and then like in my in any list that i've ever created and they're sort of quote unquote lists because they're they're a little bit fluid and and I'll kind of leave some things open-ended for exploration. And then inevitably I get quite a few questions on like, well, why is this, this, and what are you saying with that? I'm like, well, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> like mm-hmm. That's, you know, kind of left open a little bit open to interpretation. Um, yeah, yeah. 
I'm not trying to give a definitive answer here. I'm not some sort of expert on whatever that object is. I'm just saying like, th this is, this is what I observed. I think this is what makes it interesting to observe, but I'm not saying it's, it's one thing or another, you know, <laughs> and like sometimes people are very dissatisfied with that answer. They want some sort of definitive answer or, or for me to have taken some sort of position. And sometimes I'm not really uh, doing that. I'm just, I'm just looking at stuff and enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and that's what it's all about. Right. Or at least for me, that's what it's all about. Um, I guess other people may, may search for more, I don't know, or, or different uh, purpose, but yeah, I just like to look at things. So sort of on, on Simon's bit of, bit of a theme here of, of uh, kind of being into astronomy and, and going back out and coming back in. I'll give you a sec mm -hmm. to think about this. I'm going to ask you a question. Um, mm -hmm. But what what would be your favorite uh, book where you either sort of left astronomy? I don't say left astronomy necessarily. Maybe your your interest had waned, or maybe you you got really busy doing something else for a few years, and then kind of came back in. Maybe there was that book, and I'm going to say my my you know sort of book or recommendation for a book if somebody's in that position is uh, a book by a uh, guy named Walter Scott Houston, and that book is Deep Sky Wonders. Um, there's another edition, which is, which is a, a really great reference book called Deep Sky Wonders by Sue French, who took over the column from uh, Walter Scott Houston, I think in the, in the 90s or so. Um, but that book is sort of more of a, more of a reference book. Um, and it's a great book that I, that I use frequently as well. Um, but the Walter Scott Houston edition is more like, like sitting or sitting down with, uh, with an, with an observing friend and, uh, and kind of talking about observing and, you know, a little bit more of that, um, general meandering than, uh, than the Sue French book, but I think both of them are, are great additions. And I know when I got pretty busy with, with work and I, I think you've probably seen this with me as well. I get pretty busy with work sometimes and don't have much time, uh, as much time as I want for astronomy then. Um, that, that had gone on for two or three years. And then when I finally had some time, uh, I ended up uh, taking out the uh, Deep Sky Wonders by Walter Scott Houston from our uh, astronomy library at the, at the local uh, RESC center that I belonged to at the time. And I read that and that really, really, really inspired me. And I was like, so excited. And I think it was, I think it was uh, about a year or two after Walter Scott Houston had, had passed away that they had released that. And so I was kind of disappointed to find out that he had actually died right before I'd sort of, or right, yeah, sort of before this, this book had came out. So uh, it was kind of, kind of unfortunate, but uh, yeah, it really, really kind of inspired me. And that book is edited by Stephen James Amira and, and we mm. talked about some of his books, but I don't know, Shane, do you have, do you have a book that's kind of similar, like a book where your interest had, had waned a bit, or you, you were busy with, with life or something else. And then something that kind of really motivated you to get back out observing. Yeah, for sure. Um, two things actually that I'll list and, and neither are books. So I may, I may disappoint you a little bit on that front. <laughs> um, but one is just um, like pick your magazine of choice, but the annual observing guides, you know, highlighting kind of key events throughout the year. Um, yeah. That's, that's been always kind of, you know, motivational. If there's something that is exciting, uh, that, that gets me, uh, um, you know, it kind of reinvigorates, it gets the juices going. Um, and then the other one is online. Um, I've, uh, like, I've definitely gone through those ups and downs too, in terms of my interest, uh, and not really my interest, but I guess maybe more my motivation or my time. Um, and what, what gets me outside is, um, going to cloudy nights, 
but staying away from the gear forums and just going down to the observing forums, mm-hmm. um, reading about what people are looking at in the solar system, you know, double stars, there's a whole bunch of different focus areas. And, you know, you, you almost always, I, I, you know, hear of a new object that maybe I wasn't aware of, or I hear of observations of an object that uh, intrigue me. Maybe they see something I wasn't able to, or um, they're observing something that's maybe beyond the range of my telescopes. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that really motivating as well. Um, I just, I just like hearing about observing and, you know, if I hear about observing, uh, it makes me want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I used to read a lot more on cloudy nights, um, up to a point and then I went back to school and, uh, after, for some reason, after I went back to school, um, I just wasn't as interested in reading as much stuff online. And so now what I tend to do is think, well, instead of reading about somebody else's project, I should be working on my own. <laughs> start to, I would start mm-hmm. to like feel guilty. I don't know why. I never did feel that way before. It's not, it's not no judgment on anybody else who enjoys reading the great Cloudy Nights forums. It's just, uh, I think, I think in, in my schooling that I went back for, it's like a little bit more organizational. And I was like, well, I just should be more organized instead of just kicking back and, and reading. I should just be uh, doing, doing a little bit more. So, um, but anyway, yeah, that's neat. Yeah. It, and it's a great spot to go. There are some amazing observers, uh, on cloudy nights, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of them in there that, that do some, some great stuff and amazing resources like the resource on what objects to observe with what nebula filters by David Neasley and Bill, uh, Poloni that, that we've mentioned a few times with his eyepiece reviews and, uh, uh, John Isaacs is in that. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And it's great. It's a Cloudy Nights is a great forum. I, I recommend it to all my students to go in there. I think people are reluctant. Um, you know, just online forums can kind of go off in different directions, but it's very well moderated and very family, mm-hmm. family friendly and, and stuff like that. So can't, can't recommend it. Uh, can't recommend it enough. I still probably spend like about 40 or 50 minutes a, a day in there. I like going through and seeing what other people are talking about different different eyepieces. Sometimes I see you making posts in there too, and pretty pretty interesting to see uh, you know what what eyepieces people are buying in that. Uh, but uh, I, I would like to buy at a future point in time, as as Marge Simpson says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another one too is the Stargazers Lounge. It's pretty similar. It's kind of the yeah. European version of Cloudy Nights. Yeah, um, out of the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. it's sponsored by First Light Optics, which is oh, okay. Yeah, which is uh, an astronomy retailer, which which I frequent, and uh, for some reason it, it's they have different and and uh, I, I think some uh, some of the uh, products that we can't get here in North America from Skywatcher, which which is a great um, global astronomy provider, and then uh, as well like the times I've purchased from them, it, it came, I think my orders from from uh, first light optics or flow as it's called uh, they arrive faster than some of the stuff I ordered from the states and uh, you know now that there's almost like a, they had signed a different free trade type agreement here uh, a few months back so I think you know it didn't seem like there was any sort of hassle that I might have expected at the, at the border and yeah there's there's lots of good uh, European astronomy shops too like telescope service and APM mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. ones like that I've bought I've bought in the past I always buy from them I'll be up one night I was up observing Mars and, and Venus in the morning in the summer and 
I decided I wanted to get a new tripod. So I ordered a tripod at 3 a.m. And then at 8 a.m. my bank is calling me. You're fraud, you've got a fraud alert, right? <laughs> Somebody used your car to drive, try to buy a tripod at 3 a.m. We were assuming this wasn't you. What kind of lunatic would be doing that? No, it was me. <laughs> you were doing some yeah, other just, reading. Just a crazy like. astronomer. Yeah, you've been doing some other reading. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, where to start? Well, maybe I'll start with the Pocket Sky Atlas. Um, so there's two versions of this thing. Uh, there's the, the original Pocket Sky Atlas, and then there's a jumbo Pocket Sky Atlas. And I have the original and I thought I wouldn't mind a copy of the jumbo. It's exactly the same charts, just everything's bigger. So it's easier, easier to read at night. Um, but to my discovery, you can't buy the pocket sky Atlas from anywhere anymore, uh, other than direct from sky and telescope, which is wow. odd. So, um, just kind of a, you know, FYI, if anybody's looking for it, um, you, unless maybe your local astronomy store has some in stock, I think, I think you're going straight to the source. Um, so I think I know why that is. Um, my understanding is that sky and telescope kind of has, is, is in a way kind of going through a similar thing that sky news did here in Canada. So in Canada, we have uh, sky news, which is a, a every other month uh, astronomy magazine. It, it's fairly thin and uh, it, it's decent. It's a, it's a good, astronomy magazine for Canada, um, especially with our smaller population and, and such. And eventually, um, Sky News decided that, uh, that, that they were going to go up for sale. And then the RASC, our sort of uh, national astronomy club that we belong to, bought it um, and has been putting it out. And uh, in the States, I think Sky and Telescope is kind of going through the same thing, where I think it was like they're larger, they were held by a larger um, publisher. And I think Sky and Telescope has has always done quite well. I've I've if if I'm not a subscriber, I'm usually buying it off the newsstand. And uh, the reason for that is with the over the border and different things like that. Like sometimes it would be on the newsstand before my coffee arrived. And I keep saying like since the since the pandemic, I, I have to get a subscription because we're just not getting out to the to the stores as much. And so I haven't haven't bought a copy in in uh, almost a year now. So. I'm going to, I think I'm, I'm going to subscribe to it because I do really miss getting, uh, getting copies. Yeah. I used to buy like every, probably every other copy or so I would just, just pick it up Uh great magazine, but I think they're, they're working on a partnership or something like that with, uh, with one of the big astronomy clubs down in the States. And, uh, and I think as part of that, that's why their store is kind of going through a bit of a, a bit of a change at this time. That's my understanding anyway. Mm, okay, interesting. Um, while I was searching, I noticed that there's a Kindle version of the Pocket Sky Atlas, which I think is somewhat new. It, it definitely was not available uh, in the past, and it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty affordable. It was nine ninety nine Canadian. So I thought, oh, I'll give that a try. I like to take my Kindle just about everywhere I go, at least when I'm traveling. So I thought maybe having a, an atlas on there would be a, a handy reference. Um, but this does not get a recommend for me. Um, it's not very good on the Kindle. Um, yeah. you know, each, like just the navigation through it is, is not very good. Um, like yeah. the, uh, like to jump around the table of contents, um, it, it groups 10 charts together. So like, if you want chart five, you pick, you know, charts one through 10, and then you advance your pages. 
Um, but each chart is maybe, so I have a, a Kindle paper white. Uh, maybe this would look good on one of the other versions of Kindles, but on, on the paper white, the chart was like maybe 50% of the size of the screen. And then oh. you'd like double click it and do a couple taps and then it would expand it for basically the whole screen. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of a pain. And then just the, it just isn't as easy to read. You know, there's a lot of information on a small uh, mm -hmm. screen. Um, just wasn't very good. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I'll actually use it. I'll probably just end up deleting it and, uh, oh. you know, school of hard knocks, but um, anyway, if anybody's interested, I you know, think I'd stay away from that one. And I kind of suspected that like to me, you know, an Atlas on a Kindle probably just doesn't make sense, but I've always been curious. So yeah, now I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised at that. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, used lots of planetarium software. One of my favorites is, is sky safari, which I think is excellent. Mm -hmm. And I have it on my tablet. Um, mm -hmm. my, my laptop is also a tablet and, uh, I think it works pretty good on that. And I, I use it for my class, my classes. I use it for um, this podcast. Um, so I, I, and I have like the instruction instructor version or whatever it's a paid for, I think it's their highest version, but it's not that much. I think I paid whenever it was a few years ago when I upgraded it again, like $34 or something, it wasn't outrageous. And considering how much I use it, it was good, but you know, I have taken it out on the night sky and it's just like, no, <laughs> like taking electronic devices out under the night sky and then futzing around with them. Like, Oh, I can't, like, it's just not the same as a piece of paper. Like I find yeah. like the, the eye works so different under the night sky that people can't imagine like um, how different your eye works under the stars. And, you know, what, what works really well, like in my living room, when I'm working on stuff um, does not work well out under the stars. And it kind of, I kind of get the same with the star charts, like inside, like when I'm, and I, I think I have a, have an image here shortly that, that we can share of a star chart that I'm kind of working on for um, my web project. Uh, and I'm kind of marking it up and doing things that are really easy to do in planetarium software is tedious and challenging on a physical star chart. But I know that when I get that star chart out under the night sky, I'm just really going to be able to whip through it. So I'm kind of, mm -hmm. kind of like reverse engineering the, the, uh, the planetarium software. So I'm going from the planetarium software to a physical chart and marking my objects and locations and putting some notes in there. And that's, that's really brutal to do using like sticky notes and stuff like that. And you're fine to, to share that chain. And, uh, uh, but you know, once you actually get out on the nighttime sky, I, I feel like this is going to be a, a game changer, right? Because I'll be able to whip through and, and find objects a, a lot faster than simply just having a list that I created using the planetarium software and then going to the chart and then trying to track those down uh, using using my night sky charts. I think that that is what I've been doing so far and that's taking too long and too painful. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good approach. I like it. I like yeah, it. Yeah, you read a you read another book though, or you've got another book under underway the I'm gonna I'm gonna try saying it. Is is it by Wilfred Buck? Is it is, yep. Yep. And uh, so Wilfred Buck is a, is a Cree uh, educator uh, just over Manitoba, not too far from here, out of the is it the uh, is it the Manitoba Indigenous Resource Center? Is that what educational resource center? Is uh, Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Center. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's called Tibiskwi Kisik. Kisik. Yeah. 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 That's it. 
Yep. That's it. Um, really, really good book. Um, super easy read. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just see here. There are 25 pages um, and there's some pictures and, and things in there. So it's not even 25 pages of text. Yeah. Um, but wow, it was a really, really nice read, a really mm-hmm. good book. So let me just read the, the little descriptor off the back of it. Um, uh, like the night sky above, Tapiskawi Kisik holds a myriad of tales rooted in Cree perspective. Uh, an exploration of stars and constellations and their associ- associated mythologies will greet you with age-old knowledge held by Indigenous people prior to European contact. Uh, through Wilford Buck's creative, spiritual, and intelligent understanding of the stars, mm-hmm. it will be easy to imagine yourself flying inside the Milky Way with Niska, which is the goose, yep. or chasing Mr. Musqua, uh, the great bear, uh, just like Tepakup, oh gee, Penisca, Penisiuk, uh, which is the seven birds. Uh, and above all, these stories can be passed on to the next generation, so they will know of the rich history, uh, science practices, and culture of the any new people. Uh, any new is, uh, is the word for Cree. Yeah. So anyway, uh, highly recommended. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, I've been very fortunate to hear uh, Orford Buck speak uh, three, at least three times, maybe four or five times. Um, and, it, and I love hearing hearing him speak and to speak the words because he's uh, like he's a uh, you know both a knowledge keeper of the information, and that's my understanding is. Um, you, you have to pass through certain, um, I'm going to say like trials. I, I don't know how else to ex- explain it. I'm not the person to explain it, but um, I've attended uh, some online sessions where they have explained it. And my understanding is that you have to pass through like certain, um, certain like levels and, and you have to go through like a process to become like a knowledge keeper in, uh, in, you know, certain for certain indigenous uh, pieces of knowledge, especially the night sky. And uh, so he's such an individual. And then when, when he speaks the words and he's like, so he'll be talking, you know, just, um, you know, in very plain and, and easy to understand language, like his, his book is written in, and then he will transition into Cree. And, and it's just amazing to hear. Like, that's one of the things that always just blows me away. Like, I look at these words and I really have to think about them before I even attempt to, to say them. And when he says them, they sound so natural and beautiful, right? It's just like, mm-hmm. that's how they go together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah it's, really neat. yeah, it's a great book. Um, I also, I've had another one for quite a while. And this one is the Ojibwe Sky Star Map Constellation Guide. Oh, yeah. Uh, an introduction. That, yeah. yeah, yeah. An introduction to Ojibwe Star Knowledge. Uh, this one's by Annette S. Lee, William Wilson, Jeffrey Tribbets, and uh, Carl Gaboe. Yeah. Um, and it's another really, really cool book. I really like it. This one's a little bit longer. Um, this yeah. one's like 40 ish pages. Yeah. Um, and just, a, a you know, a different, uh, a different indigenous perspective uh, on the night sky. Um, yeah. And it's fascinating. I went, to, I went to an online presentation by, um, William Wilson uh, a few months ago. Um, oh, neat. yeah, that, I think that was the one, um, where they're speaking about like the process they were going through to become and they were looking for knowledge for doing more of these projects they were explaining the process it was it was super fascinating um it was it was really cool yeah just just to hear to hear about that and to hear about some some of the sky lore but it was more like so my 
background in in uh, philosophy as epistemology, which is which is the study of knowledge. And uh, anyhow, that that's kind of what they were talking on. It was it was just I thought it was super interesting. It wasn't really as much about astronomy as it was about knowledge itself. Um, but you know that's that's how um, they're they're formulating the approach to uh, to understanding um, the night sky through the uh, through the indigenous perspective. Um, which is which is just just fascinating to be able to to be on the receiving end of getting books like this, um, so that we can have uh, a better understanding. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, yeah, very cool. And uh, let's see, you've got a new eyepiece coming? No, well, not yet. I'm hoping to complete a transaction soon. Um, so yeah, I found a, a 25 millimeter. TMB Ashfirk orthoscopic eyepiece. Um, so basically this is like the 20, 25 millimeter super monocentric from what I understand. It's exceptionally rare. I don't even think 50 of these eyepieces were made and um, supposed mm. to be outstanding. Um, and I've, I've wanted like some uh, lower magnification, kind of wider field, but like, you know, minimal element eyepieces uh, for some deep sky observing. Uh, so this one has always been sort of on the wish list, but more of a unicorn wish list. Like, you know, <laughs> it'll probably never happen. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I'll keep you posted. Um, not, not official yet. Um, so we'll see. Cool. Yeah. And I've also got my eye on a, and I don't think this is going to happen, but um, a Takahashi uh, Sky Patrol mount. I think it's a Sky Patrol two. There was three three generations of this mount, and it's a it's a small portable mount um, that uh, it's configurable in three setups, like EQ, uh, like a German Equatorial Alt As, and I can't remember the third one. Maybe like for just DSLR tracking. Mm. Um, so it's a, a small lightweight mount. Um, it can handle, I think about 10 pounds is what I understand. Hmm. But like the Takahashi rating of 10 pounds is like, you can go to 10 pounds and it will be fine. Whereas a lot of other mounts, if you approach the maximum, you know, it, it's not so good. Yeah. Um, so it's an intriguing mount. I love the looks of it. I love, I love everything about it. Um, I just don't really need it. So, <laughs> so yeah. if I end up buying this TMB 25 millimeter, there's just no way I'm, I'm buying this thing, but uh, it's kind of a neat mount. So I don't know. I'm intrigued. It, it's not made anymore by Takahashi. Um, I think it would be an amazing little travel mount, like for eclipses or, you know, even just general nighttime observing. Um, I think mm -hmm. it'd be pretty cool. So. Yeah. I've, I've been a really interested in that mount for a long time too. Yeah. Lightweight and good capacity and good tracking and yeah, has a very good rep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And looks like you were on the path potentially of making a purchase too, but, but it didn't happen. No, I lost an auction bid on a 77 millimeter ED Borg and objective. And it, uh, it had been up. It looked, it looked decent. The price was a little high, I thought. And then, uh, it didn't, it didn't sell at that price. And then it was reposted, um, with a very low, um, opening bid. And then there was some subsequent bids and then there was no bids for a while. I thought, well, I'll just kind of up the bid a little. And so I did. Um, but then it was, it was going to finish at like 4am yesterday or something. And I happened to get up 
and I was looking and it was like, I think it sold for like $20 less than what the individual had originally posted it at. No, so, yeah. and then somebody else posted another one right afterwards for the same price. And I was like, yeah, it's, it, it's probably worth that it probably is, but I was kind of looking to, to score a bit of a, a bit of a deal. And then I thought, well, if I don't buy that, there was a 77 Acromat, which is identical. It just has the Acromatic lens. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking maybe I'll buy that one. Somebody else had the exact same idea because sure enough, when I checked that one, it had sold. And I was oh. like, Oh shoot. <laughs> you know, like That's too bad. And again, like, I don't even need it. It's just like these objective lenses from Borg. What you can do is you can kind of swap your parts around. And I think I would need either one or two parts to actually put together basically an 80 millimeter ED uh, apochromatic telescope that's that only weighs like three and a half or four pounds. And uh, that that does appeal to me if I if I can get the right uh, get, get the right deal on on the objective because I own a focuser and an adapter, and then I just need uh, a tube to go between the adapter and the objective lens, uh, maybe another adapter in there too, I don't know. But I, I think that could be had for maybe another 100 or 150 bucks or something. And uh, yeah, to, to be able to get an ED scope of that quality, these are really good scopes. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, that would be awesome for, for $300 to be able to go there. Because I do have the uh, 80 millimeter F5 Acromat, um, which I cobbled together with your help last year. And, and it's great, but I thought, wow, if I could, if I could get something of board quality for essentially the same price, that would be, that would be really, really cool. Cause the, you know, there's a couple things that I find a bit annoying about the 80 millimeter F5. And one is that it, uh, the, like I put um, a replacement focuser on it and it's good and it's fine but I don't think I can't really seem to quite get it square to the uh, objective. So the Mm. stars are not quite round and it just, that kind of bothers me now at this point in my astronomy journey. And, and that seems to be pretty common. Most people just live with it, but for whatever reason, it does bother me a little Um, anyway. And that's like pretty much it. And it's kind of heavy for an 80 millimeter. Like it weighs, I think it weighs like five pounds or close to it. My hundred millimeter weight, which is a Takahashi weighs, 5.7 5.7 pounds. So it's kind of like, well, I don't know. You just drag the Takahashi out. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. When would you ever use an 80 millimeter F5? And the odd time, yeah, there are instances where you just want that super wide field. And that's that's the time. But uh, but apart from that, uh, then I, I want the I want the tack. So if I could kind of drop down a pound and and sort of get um, you know, a field of view that that's not much narrower than you know, I think, I think that would be sort of a magic, magic ticket. I was also looking at, there's a 76 F10, which I oh, absolutely yeah. don't need. Absolutely don't need that. I just, it's a nice long little refractor. Yeah. Again, I think that scope would, would be almost identical in size and weight to my hundred millimeter, probably again within a pound. And again, why would I take a 76 millimeter over the hundred, which I, you know, I've been incredibly happy with the TAC 100. It's just like, it's, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the only, like, the only real reason to me sometimes, well, maybe there's others, but um, sometimes smaller aperture is nice, just depending on seeing conditions. You know, the, uh, the smaller aperture just does a little bit better when the seeing isn't quite as good. Yeah. But 
it's not like a hundred millimeter is a monster telescope. Either. No. So I should, um, just, I should just make yeah. an aperture stop. If I made an aperture stop of 74 millimeters, I would have yeah. a 74 millimeter F10. So yeah. Yeah. you could tell the difference. And I mean, I think that would be an amazing 74 millimeter aperture telescope because, uh, and you know, it's the Takahashi, um, and stopping down a telescope always seems to be a little bit more of an improvement than, uh, than just, just dropping down. But, but mm. I've been working, I've been working more and, and Shane, I put a couple, uh, things in here. One of them, I'm not sure how this could be distributed. So I have two things here. If you're good for me to talk about the garbage, yeah. I threw notes. Yeah, go for <laughs> it. So one is, what do you call this? Like an observing form or a log? template yeah, or yeah i'd call it like a, a log template you know you've got a, a table here with a bunch of fields to log your observation so what i'm what i'm doing is i'm working through tw web celestial objects for common telescopes volume two and uh, i'm identifying fields that he noted were interesting he just said this is an interesting field or this is uh, a beautiful field or this is a glorious field or different things like that and i'm like there's no real scientific value in this at all whatsoever, but I'm like, he's a well-respected sort of historical figure in astronomy. And most of the time people are either using his notes either for the double stars, which is mostly what he was observing or for the handful of deep sky objects he was, he was observing as well. Uh, and he's now been credited with making like half a dozen or so discoveries of, on his own, but this is sort of a slightly different dimension. So he'll say, Oh, I looked at this double, but the field is really pretty too. And I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of neat. It's almost like there's like a subset of objects in here that, that he, he very briefly noted. So I've kind of gone through his book and I've pulled all those out and I've put them into a document. And then now I want to go and observe them and sketch them. And so I thought, well, how am I best going to do this? So I, I decided to make up my own template um, and I'm, I'm calling them object number uh, simply, I think it's by the order they appear in the book or by the, I, no, wait, I'm doing it by the best order they will appear in the night, nighttime sky for me at this time so that mm -hmm. I can kind of rapidly work through. So I start in like Canis Major and Puppis and maybe I think there might be one in Lepus or something like that. And then Orion and the, the constellations, which are sort of at the Meridian or at, at the highest point in the nighttime sky right now. And uh, that way, when I go out, I can sort of start on page one and kind of work my way through. And then as those constellations start disappearing below the horizon in, in the early evening and mid-evening sky, then I can kind of transition over to, to the next ones and, and so on and so forth as I, as, I, as I work my way through. I think like in total, I end up with like, like I said, I think I have like 120 objects or give or take something like that. So it's a good, good project for the year. Uh, anyway, so on this template, I, I say there's, uh, well, the, First things you notice is there's a title, just object number. So I just, I'm just labeling them as just object one, two, three, four, five, so on. And then below that, there's a spot to sketch, which is just simply part of a, part of a template from another template. And then I list constellation catalog numbers, because some of them are logged as different catalog object type. If, uh, if applicable, some of them are asterisms. Some of them are just open clusters. Some of them are just a field or whatever. And then magnitude, again, as appropriate size, a lot of these size isn't, isn't known. Um, but I do have the right ascension and declination. I'm going to circle back to that in a second here. Uh, and then the interstellarum chart. So I use the interstellarum, what's it called the deep sky atlas? Interstellarum deep sky atlas. I think that's what Yeah, I think called. so. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's, um, 
in my opinion, I don't know about you, Shane, but in my opinion, that is like the uh, observing reference these days for deep sky observing. If you're going to have a chart in the field, I think that uh, Ronald Stoyan has done a done a great job uh, with that. And uh, the pages are are nice. The size is nice. Um, I do have Urnometria, uh, the most recent edition from ten or twelve years ago, but it's it's huge. I feel like it's like a separate trip out to the car when I take that and the, the pages are a little bit small. Um, so I find that something like, like uh, interstellarum uh, for me, it work, works a little bit better anyway, because I can just kind of mm-hmm. throw it in my observing bag with my clothes and it's, it's yeah. not real. So. Yeah. And, and the coil binding of uh, interstellarum is really nice in the field. Whereas yeah. Uh, uranometria is like your regular book binding and it's just to me that's more of the planning book you know you, you can use that at the desk indoors yeah and you know the one thing they did with uh uranometria which i wasn't happy about is they put it all together in one book and the book is huge mm-hmm. it's, the, I, it's the biggest book i own or one of them anyway and uh, originally they had two or three books or something like that and uh that those worked a little better and they didn't have as much data in those books. So what they weren't, they weren't half the size in two books. They were about two thirds of size in two books. And now this is all together in one book. It's a monster. Uh, no longer made. It's unfortunate too, but uh, yeah, then I have remarks, weather object. Um, so sort of back to interstellarum. Um, the, uh, I put the chart number in there because I'm going to be using that. And so what I do is as I'm going through each object, I'm writing chart number, whatever on a sticky note. So the first set of objects is on chart 72. And so I'm making a sticky note. It says chart 72 and which objects are on that. And I'm taking the sticky note and flagging um, the, the book so that when I get out into the nighttime sky and I get all set up, then I'm just like flipping to that page. Mm. And then instead of like having to go to the index and like, Oh, where's mm-hmm. monoceros or whatever. And, and mm. then these objects are not, uh, many of them are not clearly marked or you have to um, do like a reduction in the epoch. And I'll explain that. So what happens is over the course of time, um, there's uh, two different things that occur. Uh, that really impact us as visual observers. One of them is um, precession of the equinoxes, um, and the tilt of the earth. And so over, over time, the earth actually will tilt and this causes some stars to rise above the horizon, some stars to go below the horizon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the other thing is um, just because of the proper motion of stars and just kind of the drift of different things in the, um, you know, in the celestial sphere overhead, um, you know, objects will actually transition even from one constellation to another. Now, over the course of maybe 50 or 100 years, that's not as apparent. But Webb, I think, was using 1850 epoch. And we're like pretty close to 2025 now. So we're getting close to a 200 year uh, difference here. And it's enough. Like you notice that when you're actually uh, using software in particular, Um, you notice that. And even with interstellarum, like I think most things are about like a finger or, or a degree off. And it, and it depends. I noticed that in some areas of the sky, it's more in some areas of the sky, it's less and probably has to do with the relationship to the equator or the North pole or different things like that. And I haven't quite figured out what that is. So what I do is I take an object 
that is a known object, like maybe a double star or an open cluster or something like that. And then I, I'll, the one that's closest to whatever he's talking about, and I'll reduce that down to the modern coordinates. And mm -hmm. then I'll extrapolate that out to the object that he's, he's talking about, if it isn't clear. But a lot of the times he'll say like, oh, well, like there's a bright red star near M46 that's really pretty or whatever. Then I'm like, okay, well, I'll figure out what, that, what one that is. And then I'll just kind of flag it there. So that's like my object two you'll see in the middle of the middle. Oh, yeah. So, so that's kind of the method to my madness. And then some of the fields, he's just like, oh, this is an interesting field. And sometimes it's just a random field or sometimes it's near an object. So I'll just kind of write that down and then I'll, uh, I'll put on a sticky note and then just sort of slap it on the page with a little arrow pointing to generally where that should be. And some of them are pointed at objects and some of them are just pointed at blank spots in the sky. And uh, so that's like the exploration process. But um, some of these things wouldn't be too bad to sort out. But, you know, when you get out under the nighttime sky, like I feel like I shave off half of my intelligent points you know like you get tired and slow down and whatever and to try to start to then take coordinates and then do that reduction in the field to find things I, that would be impossible i think so i'm hoping yeah this no i i was just gonna say i love this because i do spend enough time too much time uh looking at my list of objects that i want to observe then like you said okay now what what page is that in my star chart book yeah. And then once you're on that page, it's like, okay, you know, I usually what I try to do is just quick glance. Can I see the object that I'm looking for? If I yeah. can't, then it's, well, what's the RA and the declination? And then you're, you know, finding it on the chart and that's it's a real brutal. pain. And yeah. uh, that's the least fun part of observing. So I like this preparation that you've done by just marking it up with some stickies to say, Hey, look here. Now look here. Now look here. <laughs> it's way yeah. easier. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping I haven't, I've done this before, but not to this level of detail. Um, mm. So we'll see how it goes. So far, I've just done the first four objects. <laughs> so we'll see if I keep this up. But it's just been one of those weeks where I couldn't uh, put as much time and attention into this as, as I wanted. So I kind of did this like last uh, Sunday night or Monday evening or something. Um, so yeah, so we'll see how we'll see how this goes. But, uh, but my class starts this week. So, uh, so that can... Uh, that can impact things, things as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, really, I have nothing else to add. I just thought I would include these. And these, these could be um, put up on the website or we could put mm -hmm. them out uh, via Twitter or something like that. I, I don't know what the best way to do it is, but pe people are happy to, uh, to take a copy of this, uh, this template I've made to use for their own purposes or, or make changes uh, if, they, if they want. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'll figure that out. It'll either be Twitter or the website. I'm, I think the website is probably a better place, uh, particularly good. for the, uh, observing doc. Log. Um, yeah, yeah. Documents. Yeah. 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 Sounds good. Anything else to add Shane? No, that's all Chris. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.